All right. Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Raiders Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. Well, this week it's John's turn. So, John, why don't you tell us about the story that you picked? Well, when I was in uh, college in the 90s, it seemed like every creative writing class brought this story to my attention in some way. There was in the anthology that was involved with this class or we had to read it through some other means. And that was 30 years after it had been written. So I thought uh, I would wanted to revisit now that it's been 60 years since it was written. <laughs> so I thought I'd bring it in and see what we thought, why it's so good. What the hell is it, John? Uh, it's I Stand Here Ironing by uh, Tilly Olson. Awesome. Is there a section that you'd like to read? for us yep i stand here ironing and what you asked me moves tormented back and forth with the iron i wish you would manage the time to come in and talk with me about your daughter i'm sure you can help me understand her she's a youngster who needs help and whom i'm deeply interested in helping who needs help even if i came what good would it do you think because i am her mother i have a key or that in some way you could use me as a key she has lived for 19 years there is all that life that has happened outside of me beyond me and when is there time to remember to sift to weigh to estimate to total i will start and there will be an interruption and i will have to gather it all together again or i will become engulfed with all i did or did not do and what should have been and what cannot be helped she was a beautiful baby, the first and only one of our five that was beautiful at birth. You do not guess how new and uneasy her tendency in her now loveliness. You did not know her all those years. She was thought homely or see her pouring over her baby pictures, making me tell her over and over how beautiful she had been and would be, I would tell her, and was now to the seeing eye. But the seeing eyes were few or non-existent, including mine. I nursed her. They feel that's important nowadays. I nursed all the children. But with her, with all the fierce rigidity of first motherhood, I did like the books then said. Though her cries battered me to trembling and my breasts ached with swollenness, I waited till the clock decreed. Why do I put that first? I do not even know if it matters or if it explains anything. She was a beautiful baby. She blew shining bubbles of sound. She loved motion, loved light, loved color and music and textures. She would lie on the floor in her blue overalls, patting the surface so hard in ecstasy her hands and feet would blur. She was a miracle to me, but when she was eight months old, I had to leave her daytimes with the woman downstairs to whom she was no miracle at all, for I worked or looked for work and for Emily's father, who could no longer endure, he wrote in his goodbye note, sharing want with us. Well, I think it's interesting that you wanted to bring it up because you read it a while ago and at the time it, you know, had some years on it and you kind of wanted to revisit it because that was one of the first things that struck me about this story was I didn't go back and do my homework until after reading it. So I didn't even realize that it was written when it was and it felt really modern to me. It felt like this is a struggle that mothers still today deal with. Yeah, and probably years and years before too. Well, I think it would been different years and years before when like i don't know this seems like it was at the cusp of women entering the workforce in a widespread way and like the way that this mother talks about failing her daughter feels like whether or not um you could chalk it up to the same kind of like career driven women of today it feels like a very first world kind of struggle right she's not wondering whether or not she fed her daughter she's wondering whether or not like she mothered her in a way that allowed her to flourish or if she did something that like irrevocably harmed her and kind of by the 
the end, she's deciding like, you know, even if I did, my daughter's okay. Yeah, I guess the specific worry is that, but I was just thinking that worry over your kids in general. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh, my point. My Yeah. Okay. So you're absolutely right. This is like timeless in that sense. But I, I mean, if you told me that this was written by someone yesterday, I would be like, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because women are dealing with this still. This is not something that's like um, solved yet. Even if, even though women have been in the workforce now for an additional 30 years, this, this still feels as relevant. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and it kicks it off that way. Just at the beginning with what you read, it talks immediately about managing your time to come in and talk about your daughter as if, you know, I mean, that wording is intentional, right? As if she hasn't managed her time properly or it's not a priority. She's kind of like, uh, yeah, I've been managing my time and uh, <laughs> definitely made some mistakes, but what good is it now? Yeah. It is interesting that this, it was published, written in 61, but I think it's reflecting experiences that the author had in the 30s, if I'm remembering right. So this is like almost 90 years old and it's in the situation right. it's depicting, but it's still, like you said, very much modern, you know, coming out of the depression and just the needs of that she was having living through the depression. Maybe what also feels like modern and relevant about this is that obviously this is a story where the narrator is talking about her inner thoughts with just us, the reader, right? She's not responding to this person that asked her to come in and talk about her daughter with all of these thoughts on her shortcomings. So it's not as if she's publicly airing these regrets, but there's something about the honesty with at least the reader that feels modern. This doesn't feel like the kind of regret you might even have discussed in this era, right? You might have felt it personally, but if you were able to get by, especially in the depression, you weren't going to then talk about like whether or not your kid was doing well enough, you know, like just comparing to your neighbors. So there's something about, I don't know, it feels like authentic and it feels like an essay you would read in the Atlantic these days. Where, where a mother is talking about like, you know, I went to work and my kid, she does okay. But like, I don't know. Did I screw her up? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of sad. We haven't progressed in that regard. Children are our future, aren't they? Yeah. Well, well, we have though, right? In the sense that like, this is still a first person story. And like, maybe this character would not have shared it in her time, like in the real world. Obviously the, the author's writing about, like you said, a time before it was published. So maybe it's progressed since the time it was published. And then it's even progressed further if like you would then now, in these days share these exact intimate thoughts with like the internet so we're still failing our children but we're willing to talk about it (laughs) that's true that's progress yeah there's facebook groups for this now (laughs) there is Well, um, I kind of realized like after reading this, that this is it's obviously beautiful writing. It's this stream of consciousness, but you can't really call it that because it is so well honed. Like none of these sentences are wasted. It doesn't really ramble. It's just, it's a smooth transition from one thought to another, you know? And then she starts telling you about her, how she grew up and what she's doing now. And it feels like she took a big breath before she started talking. And then at the end, she's she's finished, you know? It doesn't feel rushed, but it feels like a, this one complete thought and then she wraps it up again she bookends it again with this ironing we're kind of aware that she's ironing the whole time but um she definitely brings it back at the end there and talks about it again and it kind of made me realize like this is probably a good example of like an extended metaphor you know that ironing may or may not be necessary to this but it plays some kind of a role so she and she says it with that first line right like i stand here ironing and what you ask me moves tormented back and forth with the iron so you can see her just like going to town on this dress shirt and just stressed right and this is like on repeat and then like by the end 
And she's basically saying that her daughter, and I won't read it because it's beautiful, but she basically says like, I hope that life is not treating my daughter the way this iron treats these clothing where she's just kind of like giving up and letting life take her, you know, and just kind of treat her this way, like shoving her around on the ironing board, much more articulate when you read uh, Tilly's version. However, it's not for nothing that that extended metaphor is there, right? It, like you could take it away and be fine. She could have some other nice, neat ending, but it made me wonder if this had not been like a real scene that the author experienced, right? Like she's she's ironing and she's thinking about something and what a great way to kind of work it in. I love there's a moment near the end where the daughter says, aren't you ever going to finish the ironing yeah. mother? Whistler painted his mother in a rocker. I'd have to paint mine standing over an ironing board. So it's not literally a metaphor in that um, it is happening as part of the quote unquote scene of the story, but it is a metaphor for who she is as a person. She's constantly ironing. Even her daughter remarks on how much like her whole life is just ironing. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, it's kind of like, you know, if, if instead of ironing, she was gardening, like we'd find a way to make that work. It's just kind of like whatever it is that like consumes her hands is like not ridding her mind of this other thing. Right. And so yeah, you can't help but look, they're like intrinsically connected where you do something kind of like menial and then your mind just wanders. And if it keeps wandering back to the same thing, then you can't help but like attribute it. Right. Like every time I'm doing the laundry, I play a podcast <laughs> because otherwise, what would I be doing? You know, I'd be worrying about something you're like, you know what I mean? Like when your brain is just free to do something, it, it, it revisits the same thoughts over and over again. So yeah, I like that. This is a woman that every time she sits up that ironing board, she knows like her, her head's going to go somewhere else. And her daughter is basically saying like, why are you worrying all the time? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that structure. You know, this isn't the first or last story to do that kind of thing where it's one that's like a, a current scene that elicits this chain of memories, but you know, it does it really well. And it is the chain of memories and the, the concern are all, it's the complete story. So, yeah. So I really like that structure of it. You start right. with her ironing, end with her ironing. And then we got this journey in the middle. That's all internal to her, internal to her, but realized in these little moments throughout their shared life. Right. Like, I bet you could come up with a story that to you feels like it covers the map, like in terms of a character's whole being, right? She's explaining her daughter from start to finish, start to present. And that might feel like a really daunting story, but some kind of a structure like this gives it like a place to exist, you know? You don't want to draw this metaphor or you don't want to like draw this ironing scene out for a novel, obviously. So if you like define these constraints where you're like, I'm going to either compare it to this one thing or tell it while this narrator realizes it reminds her of something else, it gives you a way to like contain it. Yeah, I think What's important about it is it's, it is telling the story of the daughter's life, but it's in the view of the mother's concerns about her. You know, so it's not the daughter's story. It's the mother's story and how she, her feelings about her daughter manifest throughout her life. And um, that's what I think makes the structure work, because if it was just as the, the daughter's story, we don't need the, the mother to tell it in the way she's telling it. We just start it like, OK, she was born and then read through. And, and that would be a compelling story if it was about her but what makes this compelling is it's about the mother and just the daughter's story is what she's focused on which tells us 
who she is and what her issues are. Yeah, that's a good point. Like maybe a less experienced writer would have included scenes that didn't kind of hark back to that, the crux of it, which is the mother's regrets, right? Yeah. Maybe it would have just gone off on tangents that talked about the daughter, but didn't link it to why the mother felt like she failed. So that all goes back to what you talk about all the time, which is like choosing the right details. Yeah. So it's not just choosing the right detail. I mean, the details tell the story, but choosing the uh, structure in which the story can best be, um, can best live and breathe. Mm -hmm. Where can you bring in the elements that the story needs? Like you need the daughter, obviously, because that's the object of rumination for the mother. And then you need the mother's rumination. So you put her at an ironing board where her mind can wander freely and then bring them together. And that's the story. Right. It's also probably like worth noting then too that, I mean, it's obvious, but I have to say it out loud. Like this entire story happens in the character's head. There's there's a couple moments in scene. There's even the moment where the daughter says like, you're always standing there. Yeah. But it's not as if she's thinking this while she goes to the store and while she cooks dinner for her daughter. And then while the daughter walks in and then she has a conversation with the daughter, like this is all in her head. It's all at the ironing board. So that's important too, when you're talking about like scope. Yeah. It's not like if this was a play, you'd only need one set. It could be like a, what is it? A soliloquy? What's it called? Just talks like, yeah, this could be like an effective with yeah monologue without like any other set she doesn't even leave the ironing board she doesn't then like you don't whisk in like a new part of the house even she's just at the ironing board and so much is happening in her head that happens in all of our heads when we daydream like this or stress or just like ruminate yeah it could be like a a one one man show one woman show just give her an ironing board or maybe they could do the thing where like she's always on stage ask jenny where (laughs) she's like always on stage but then like all of a sudden they like light something off to the side that you saw them setting up in the dark and then it's like the daughter playing out her childhood blah blah over here there's a name for that i'm sure but uh listen sounds like we got (laughs) something on our hands here john that's right our adaptation it's coming (laughs) be on the lookout (laughs) i think the money is definitely in adaptations i can pick a good piece of artwork and uh pretend i put my own spin on it there you go sure you mentioned the um, it's beautifully written. There was a line that I underlined. She's talking about um, the baby sitting for a while. And we sit for a while and I hold him, looking out over the city spread in charcoal with its soft aisles of light. And I, I just stopped at that and said, oh, I got to mark that line. That's always good. That's when I was little and first started reading. That was when I realized like how much I loved writing was like underlining lines like that, where I was like, holy shit, that is a winner. That's right. You know, like there are a few lines these days where I I feel I have to get a pen and mark my book, but it's for the really good ones like that. And of course, you introduce that scene right after I mentioned that she doesn't leave the ironing board. And of course, I forgot that the youngest child is very much present in this. Yeah. Yeah, So oops. But even then, like, uh, I'm sure we could go through and prove our idea again by showing that even as she's talking about the son or, you know, catering to him, she's relating all of this back to the daughter. She's like, "I'm, I'm comforting him, but I didn't comfort her. You know, like he calls for me and I immediately respond. But when she was grown up, up like you know she got overlooked and so it still yeah. goes back to the point yeah i mean the iron is like the center of her galaxy you know she's always drawn to it drawn back to it so no matter what she does the iron is still there steaming away ready to be deployed the other thing that i think felt mo- be deployed that's funny <laughs> the other thing that <laughs> it's like rosie the riveter goes ironing so the other thing that uh felt modern for this though is that she's talking about how um essentially her daughter's like childhood trauma turned her into a very successful comedian which is something that millennials talk about all 
the time, right? They're like, my trauma is what makes me funny. And that's what that's what kind of feels modern about this too. It's like, holy crap, this was written in 1961, but it was written at a previous time. And she's talking about her daughter, a woman <laughs> in that time, getting up on stage and wowing people. I was like, I thought Marvelous Miss Maisel was a completely fictional. And, and here we have like, I thought that was great. She could have said something like, and maybe this is based on something that's true or whatever, but it almost has to be because back then, I don't think this was like among the things that you would have picked, but she didn't say like, you know, my daughter's traumatized, but she's a really good teacher or, but she's mothering just fine. She's like, but she's getting up on stage and she feels alive and she transforms in front of this audience and the world at large is like accepting of her, right? It's not that just that she's somehow found happiness, like being a regular person, right? This is a measure by anyone's count of like, this is success, right? You're able to get up there and, and impress people who like you. And and there's really good lines describing that. It talks kind of about how the audience like wants her to be there or is like doesn't want her to get off stage and feels like they're a part of her. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I feel like we could trace like the history of comedy to try to put it in in a place. There's a the, the transition from vaudeville to what we have now had a couple of phases. It's fascinating. I'd be curious to, I don't know it off the top of my head, obviously, but I do wonder how different it is. Yeah. And it reminds me too, as I'm looking through here, talks about uh, she fretted about her appearance, thin and dark and foreign looking at a time when every little girl was supposed to look or thought she should look a chubby blonde replica of Shirley Temple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, oh, let me scroll up and see when this was written. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And then it mentioned like uh, giving her kids money to go get candy. And it was like licorice was his favorite. And I was like, well, she didn't mention ring pops. So this is definitely this is when licorice costs five cents. I'm going to read this paragraph. She began to be asked to perform at other high schools, even in colleges, then at city and statewide affairs. The first one we went to, I only recognized her that first moment when thin, shy, she almost drowned herself into the curtains. Then, was this Emily? The control, the command, the convulsing and deadly clowning, the spell, then the roaring, stamping audience unwilling to let this rare and precious laughter out of their lives. It's like, holy shit. That's, you know, that's not some girl that like did the talent show, even though she didn't want to and prove something to herself. Like she's killing it. Yeah. And I mean, and, and you still have a mother and this is typical, right? Who doesn't think she she did enough or did it right? I think that's a great paragraph to read because that sets up the next two where in which uh, she says afterwards, you ought to do something about her with a gift like that. But without money or knowing how, what does one do? We have left it all to her and the gift has so often eddied inside, clogged and plotted has been used and growing this is where her regret is coming in it's like i don't know how to make her a better version of herself how to actualize that gift but she seems to be doing it on her own and then the next paragraph is she is coming this is back to the current scene she runs up the stairs two at a time with her light graceful step and i know she is happy tonight whatever it was that occasioned your call which is what set up the whole rumination did not happen today so she's like, she seems fine today. Things are good. She's right. got this gift. It's it's coming out. I don't have to be so regretful, even though I am. Yeah. And then she has, that's where she has the interaction with her daughter that you mentioned, where she's like, if I drew you, I would draw you at the ironing board, yeah. paint you at the ironing board. And then she has this immediate thought. The mother does. She says, she is so lovely. Why do you want me to come in at all? Why were you concerned? She will find her way. So she's, I mean, she's going back and forth too, right? Like she, if she's playing the part of like the good listener and good friend who's like, you did great. 
great. Yeah. So it's not just um like maybe the story would not be fun to read if she was just wallowing the whole time. You know, like she's not definitive. She seems to be like working something out, which I think is also a really fun story to read. Yeah, it has movement. It doesn't just start yeah. one place and stay there. Yeah, I think that's important though to mention because I've definitely written stories like that where it's almost like I feel like I have a good idea for something and sometimes I'll wait and wait and wait and I don't write it. And then I kind of realize that the story is me trying to figure it out. And like some of my, I feel like best stories, at least in my own opinion, like is when I'm writing it and then when I'm writing it, I'm realizing what the story is and maybe the story is me working it out or maybe the story is bigger than that. But like I'm watching it come together as I do it. So a lot of times one of my best procrastination tools is to wait until an idea is perfectly formed. And um, (laughs) until then, there's no point. But uh, sometimes it really works. And yeah, like you said, it it gives it movement. Yep. Yeah, I I think this is a good story. Well made, well crafted. 60 years after it was written, we've determined uh, it's good. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So Tilly, uh, you can chill now. Somebody go update Wikipedia. Yeah, Tilly can rest in peace. Okay, you ready to talk about takeaways or is there anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, I'm good with takeaways. So what is your takeaway? I guess my takeaway for this one is uh, basically this this structure and kind of the stuff we've already talked about. Having, you know, it's not a traditional scene, scene, scene kind of setup. It's um, an overarching scene into which the character ruminates about something. And that's a, you know, it's a cool structure in which to explore stuff, explore characters and in and, uh, and lifetimes, apparently, you can do like 20 years or 50 years or whatever within that. But the important thing is what we've already talked about is to have movement and for the framing character, the story to actually be about the framing character rather than about the character that they're ruminating about seems to be a key to the structure so so that it doesn't feel superfluous. Like, why are we seeing this through the so-and-so's eyes? So I think that's my takeaway is just kind of thinking about that structure. And I think you can take those lessons about how this is structured and apply them in other differently structured things, like how to focus on your main character as the driver of the story, how to make sure that the story has movement and and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm glad you went first because that that was my original takeaway was kind of like, you know, if you can think of something like ironing or if you can think of like a menial task and like, what do you think of when you're doing that? And like, is that somewhere where there's a story for uh, you or for a made up character? Especially if I feel feel like this first person really works that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that like definitely adds something. So maybe that'll be like a prompt, right? Because that's kind of like an easy thing. It doesn't like tell you a whole lot about why this is good. It's just like kind of a a knee jerk way to contain your story. But um, I don't know. I kind of like what I was talking about at the end there where this, like you said, it gives it movement. But um, I like that it's just trying to figure something out, you know, and she she covers all her bases. Like, I mean, one minute she says she's a terrible mother and then she says her daughter's fine. And then at the end, she's still kind of thinking to herself like, but I hope she doesn't just lay down and let the world screw her over. So she's she hasn't settled necessarily this debate, right? This is not the last time she's going to be thinking about this while she's ironing. So there's no like movement toward a conclusion that way. But I like stories that are like trying to work something out. And I think first person is good that way. So think about something you haven't like figured out. You don't have to have like, I don't know, sometimes we think we have to have some conclusion in a story where it's like, oh, such wisdom. It's like, uh, you probably <laughs> you probably don't have any of that. 
that, you know, you (laughs) might think you do. I guarantee it's going to come across as like very cliche, but this is why people love ambiguous stories and people love writing them because that gets them off the hook to decide anything definitively one way or the other. Right. That's right. Yeah. And this way it's just kind of like, it also feels really, really human. I think another good thing about what she does in here is it's, it's a moment. And like you said, it's probably the same thoughts she had again and again, but this is a particular moment in time that was occasioned by a specific event, which was a phone call from somebody at the school and she's reacting to that. And I think that's, that's a good point. Something to consider is there should be some impetus for the beginning of the story. And then you can do that whole ruminative thing throughout. Yeah, that's a good point. An impetus will, will give it some uh, feeling of movement. It'll at least begin the movement and then you can carry it on and, and bring it to a conclusion. Yeah, it'll give it a direction too. Yeah. Versus saying like, I was ironing and as I always do when I am ironing, I was thinking of my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.